You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 149. If you're a deer hunter in Ireland, or maybe not even necessarily deer hunter, hunter full stop, you know that there are many things in motion at the moment that will likely result in changes. Changes both to deer uh, licensing, deer hunting licensing, as well as the firearms licensing. So first of those things is uh, uh, are the public consultations on deer management in Ireland. And the result of these uh, consultations will likely be uh, some changes to hunting season, maybe some other changes, uh, who knows. And another thing is that the Department of Justice formed Firearm Expert Committee and that committee uh, produced a report and that also very likely will result in changes how firearms are licensed in Ireland. And obviously um, firearms licensing changes are going only one direction across the world and Ireland is already a country with uh, probably the most strict uh, firearms regulations so all that is a uh, reason for a bit of a concern so um, our guest today is uh, none other than Liam Nolan deer hunters uh, likely know Liam from his work in the deer alliance Uh, also he's the main man behind the hcap certification for deer hunters and obviously I want to talk with Liam on the podcast for uh a few years already, um, but finally, uh, it was my pleasure to host uh, Liam on this episode of the podcast, and what a great timing, uh, because I think he is the best person in Ireland to talk about those things, and he's obviously very much involved, uh, keeps his um, hand on the pulse with relation to both of these uh, items that are going on, so we dived into the subject of deer licensing and firearms licensing now as usual before i let you enjoy this episode of the podcast reminder to subscribe to my newsletter the link is in the description of the show and that newsletter is not only reminders about the new episodes of the podcast but there's a lot of other stuff in there among them links for further reading on subjects we discuss on this podcast so in this case you will find uh, some links uh, to read about the report from this uh, firearm expert committee and uh, um, some blogs from Liam on the Deer Alliance website also now is probably the last chance to buy the tickets for the environmental debate live and unscripted in Oxfordshire where yours truly going to be talking about consuming meat while having the environment and animal welfare at the forefront of your mind so uh, go and grab the tickets um they're selling out fast so hopefully you still uh manage to get one for yourself it will be very interactive event 
with the roving mics and all that crack so good stuff i'm i'm looking forward to it so yes uh i think that's it for the introduction to this episode and now ladies and gentlemen deer hunters and hunters and shooters uh, liam m nolan and we are going to talk about uh potential changes in uh, deer hunting licensing and firearm licensing in ireland Liam, welcome to the show. It is great pleasure to have you. Hello, Tommy. Good to see you again. There is a lot of things going on in uh, Irish deer hunting and in maybe wider in Irish hunting uh, at the moment. We're going to touch on, on them all, maybe most of them. But before we're going to start into that, um, I believe that most of the people who are listening to this podcast and are interested in deer hunting know you well, or some of them at least heard about you, right? The HCAP guy. But there's also a few people who never heard about you, uh, who are listening to this podcast. And I was thinking how to introduce you. And you are a man who wears many hats. You are a involved in uh, the Deer Alliance. You were a member of Irish Deer Management Forum. You were, uh, you are a member or, or uh, maybe a chairman, uh, you can elaborate on that, on uh, the final users representative group. You're also an author. You wrote a book, Seek of the Wild Deer, uh, the Stalkers Training Manual, which Hayes Cup cer certified hunters know. Please introduce yourself to to a listeners, you know, in, in order of all those things that you feel are most important and most relevant for our podcast. Well, thanks very much. You've been more than generous there, Tommy. Uh, you haven't pointed out any of the bad aspects of my long career in hunting. Um, but yes, I've been course director uh, on the Deer Alliance HCAP uh, for 20 years. Uh, I was involved in the setting up of it with uh, Quilcha and the NPWS and a committee uh, of up to 12 or 13 interested stakeholders. And that was in 2003. Uh, and following a, a two-year program uh, of development, it was formally launched in 2005. And since that date, approximately 3,700 licensed hunters have participated in HCAP, which I'm quite proud of, to be honest with you. Uh, and hopefully that will continue well into the future. Uh, yes, I, I have been involved with deer in particular and game shooting in general for close on uh, 45 years, I suppose, and uh, I'm a former chairman and, and president of the Irish Deer Society. Um, but I've been involved at different levels as well uh, with the uh, Working Spaniel Club of Ireland uh, and, as you mentioned there, the Irish Deer Management Forum, to which I was appointed in 2015, uh, which theoretically is still in being, although it's been overtaken by the new uh, Deer Management Strategy Group which is charged with continuing the work of the forum, but on a narrower working base. Um, they're the important points. I, I try to combine all of that with my working life as a practicing barrister. 
So, which I find quite useful um, in terms of particularly at the moment, the review of firearms legislation that's in progress. Uh, you mentioned FERG, which is the Firearms Users Representative Group. How that came about was that when Minister James Brown announced that he was conducting a review, uh, I contacted the relevant stakeholders, in particular uh, the NAOGC, and suggested that uh, unity on the different issues might be the best way forward, given uh, that this proposed review was going to happen without direct consultation with stakeholders. And happily, the NAOGC and basically all the other relevant organizations, uh, including the Firearm Dealers Association, the different deer organizations, the rifle shooters, and so on, all came on board. Now, that's a, that's a work in progress. Uh, we've been involved in trying to organize a meeting with Minister Brown for the last uh, four weeks, and indeed, right through the life of the Firearms Expert Committee, uh, through to the end of March. And unfortunately, the minister has, to this date, refused to meet with stakeholders directly. So that is, uh, all I would say on that point is, uh, watch this space. Right. So you already gave a heads up on what is uh, that we're going to talk about. So first of, first of all, let's talk about deer management in Ireland. And like you mentioned, there, 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 there was, or there, there, there was, I think at this point, the Irish Deer Management Forum, and then Department of Agriculture, Food and Mar the Marine launched a public consultation on the deer management uh, in Ireland. And my understanding was that, uh, again, the members of Irish Deer Management Forum were either not involved or involved in not uh, uh, sufficient numbers. And there are um, understandable concerns over this, uh, this new initiative by Irish government. Uh, could you please lay it out to us how that situation looked like, how it came to be and where we are right now? Okay. In fact, I'll, I'll go back a stage beyond um, the formation of the Irish Tier Management Forum and say that in 2011, uh, the different deer organizations, the Irish Deer Society, the Wild Deer Association, um, predominantly the Wicklow Deer Group, uh, at that stage, the Irish Deer Commission, which is now uh, an established force, was not uh, on, uh, hadn't yet been formed. But in 2011, uh, the different deer organizations recognized that there, were, there was a potential for problems uh, with deer, with uh, an apparently increasing uh, both population and range of wild deer across the country. And we had a conference in 2011, and we put forward proposals uh, to deal with this. Um, now, that fell on stony ground, unfortunately, although the different government departments were present at that conference, they didn't pick up the gauntlet that we put down on the ground uh, until four or five years later um, when the, uh, uh, there was a public consultation which did elicit, uh, oh, 60 or 70 different responses from different st stakeholder groups. And that led to uh, a document known as Framework for Action, a comprehensive document published uh, in the name of the Irish Deer Management Forum. Uh, and that seemed to me to be a positive way forward and a very solid ground from which to start work uh, on whatever problems that there were. And the problems weren't merely, you know, a general sort of uh, anecdotal thing, there are too many deer 
but you know to break it down in in terms of uh, potential cost in terms of human economic interest in relation to forestry, to grassland, uh, disease contagion, as well as importantly, deer welfare itself. Um, sadly, um, the forum was sidetracked uh, and ended up almost as a single item uh, agenda, that of uh, bovine tuberculosis and the interplay between wild deer and, and uh, cattle in particular. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a very, very important topic, and uh, I, I absolutely uh, um, think that it has to be uh, on the agenda, but it's not the only item on the agenda. Uh, there are many other aspects. Um, so as you rightly say, uh, it, we were concerned because I felt that there was a degree of disrespect, to put it mildly, on the part of um, the Minister for Agriculture when he failed to recognize the input uh, of members of the forum in setting up the Deer Management Strategy Group. Now, I, I still have an open mind as to what is going to happen out of that. Um, but unfortunately, uh, although they, they, they've been in being for upwards of nine months now, uh, and they did undertake an online uh, survey of stakeholder concerns and interests, uh, a lot of us were not happy with the way that online consultation was, was handled, um, that it, it appeared to be uh, very definitely uh, constructed uh, to lead people towards certain conclusions rather than being open-ended. And to add insult to injury, it transpired that effectively what the Deer Management Strategy Group had done was, uh, uh, if you like, uh, copy uh, a similar uh, questionnaire that has been put out by DEFRA across the water in the United Kingdom. Uh, and it's not without significance that now, almost a year after DEFRA finished their, public, their, their questionnaire, they still have not published the results of that as it might touch on deer in England, Scotland, and Wales. So, as I say, I don't want to appear totally uh, opposed to the strategy group. I'm far from it. I think it's a very positive thing, because finally, issues are being addressed. But uh, I, I feel that uh, the important stakeholders here, the people without whom deer management will not be, is not possible, um, except through some form of contract culling or contract killing, if you like. Uh, in other words, the 6,000-odd licensed hunters are the people who actually implement any agreed management plan so far as wild deer are concerned. So uh, we there is a conference. I'm not sure when this uh, podcast will be broadcast, but there is a, a presentation and seminar taking place at the end of April at which I, I hopefully... Uh, there will be progress, forward progress, and people will be able to see uh, uh, what the results of that online survey were and to develop recommendations out of that. In fairness, I would say that I have had conversations in the recent few days with Mr. Teddy Cashman, uh, and it's no breach of confidence on my part, I hope, to say um, that I, I did um, communicate some of these concerns to Mr. Cashman, um, but he, for his part, was was uh, uh, keen apparently to uh, say that there were no preconceptions in power, and in fact, on the part of uh, the group, but that he was uh, leaving it to the stakeholders to formulate more precise recommendations arising from the survey and from further discussions. And on that basis, let's just wait and see. Um, 
uh, I think the reason for my attitude is twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, Deer Alliance HCAP and I personally are deeply committed to the concept uh, summed up in the in the mantra: uh, safe, efficient, and humane management of wild deer by trained and competent hunters. And anything at all that contributes to that uh, uh, objective is to be pursued. And at the same time, recognizing that there are human economic interests uh, that, that have to be observed and, and respected. Yeah. So that's where we are on, on that side of things. And in the meanwhile, HCAP, uh, and there are now a couple of other uh, training providers, and good luck to them. I think that's, that's laudable. I think anything at all that contributes to better uh, levels of understanding and implementation is to be applauded. Um, I, I, I take some consolation in fact that HCAP uh, was developed in partnership with Quiltshire and the NPWS, uh, and, and uh, we continue to uh, uh, evolve and develop HCAP uh, according to necessity and to response, uh, and that will be part and parcel uh, of any deer management program going forward uh, arising from the thinking uh, of the deer management strategy group. Right. Who is Mr. Cashman? Mr. Teddy Cashman is the uh, chairman uh, of the uh, deer management strategy group and he has been brought in by the Minister for Agriculture as an independent chair uh, uh, to to facilitate uh, the, the, the pulling together of the opinions of the different parties. Uh, Mr. Cashman is a dairy farmer by profession, but uh, much more than that, he is, by all accounts, a, a fair-minded and apparently skilled uh, negotiator. And uh, I'm sure I, 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 I'm right in thinking that he will be fair in all his deliberations. That's my earnest hope at any rate. Right. Uh, yes, we all, I think all uh, dear hunters in Narada have <laughs> shared that hope. So... Tell us, what are the main concerns, like in the simple language, the main concern is that the recommendation will be to wipe, for want of a better word, deer, right? Because we, uh, or, or to put it more mildly, that the interest of recreational hunters will not be taken into account. Is that the main concern with that group? Well, yes, it's, it is a concern. It's not the main concern. Um, I, I think there is a starting point here, which is there's absolutely no doubt that deer populations and uh, the geographic spread of certain species has, expend, uh, has, has expanded exponentially over the last 15 years. When I first got involved with wild deer, which is well over 40 years ago, um, and I got my first license in 1977, which was the year licenses were first uh, required. Uh, the overall best estimate population of all wild deer, three species in Ireland, was somewhere between 25 and 35,000 deer. Uh, and that was based on fairly solid uh, anecdotal evidence uh, from that, that small number of, of uh, active hunters at that time. Now, time has marched on, and there have been other developments too. First of all, you've got the spread of forestry, uh, whereby you've got these vast canals of monoculture uh, across the country, uh, and, and there's a commercial reason for that, and it's a perfectly 
credible commercial reason. But nonetheless, it has meant that uh, deer have been given great opportunity for shelter uh, and there's pretty much nowhere they can't get without exposing themselves to, 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 to becoming targets. Um, but there's also a more significant uh, factor there, which is that of climate change. Uh, climate change, there's no doubt in my mind, has contributed to the propagation of wild deer. Uh, there is strong evidence to say uh, that wild deer uh, are now breeding and conceiving at a younger age than we believed was the case in the past. Uh, and there's no doubt that that Sika deer in particular, which have proven enormously adaptable in the 160 years that they've been here, 170 years they've been here in Ireland, uh, they've, they've adapted from sort of lowland island uh, geographic and locations in, in across Japan into pretty much every type of location, every type of terrain here in Ireland uh, and, and have proliferated as a result. Um, but to go back to the question of, of the degree of problems, um, yes, as I say, population increase is a significant factor. And when you compound that with a couple of years of relative inactivity because of COVID, suddenly we're seeing a, a significant blip in the population. However, it has to be said, um, that is not necessarily the fault of the recreational hunter. Um, it is ultimately the fault of the landowner, be that the state through um, the network of national parks, um, be that the, the NPWS uh, with the failure to develop and implement a national deer management strategy, or be that the private landowner, because ultimately the private landowner has a, uh, the, the, a key responsibility. It's the, it's the farming landowner um, who determines who can shoot uh, and hunt deer and manage deer on his or her property. Uh, and there's been a sort of a, a, a knowledge gap there, I think, you know, where people, number one, want to blame something uh, when, when they're exposed to economic loss, so there might as well be the deer. Um, uh, but at the same time, we can't wave a magic wand and say, well, somebody else is going to deal with this problem. The landowner has to work uh, with licensed hunters, with the wildlife service, with the Garda authorities and everybody else to uh, arrive at a workable solution. An example of that, for example, uh, has been the development of uh, uh, deer management groups uh, in, in the north of Wicklow over the last three or four years. Uh, and they have worked very quite well, at least apparently on the surface, in terms of at least beginning, being able to measure uh, the level and nature and spread of problems there. But I'll come back to that at a different heading. That's, that's more to do with the, with the deer management, uh, uh, the Wicklow deer management reports, which um, give rise to certain questions uh, in relation to bovine tuberculosis. But we'll come back to that. Um, in, in broadly, however, of course, bovine TB is a major concern for for um, all, all, all beef farmers, dairy farmers, and so forth. So, uh, somebody with a working knowledge like Mr. Cashman would definitely appreciate that, I think. But would also recognise that that it's not entirely the fault of deer. I, I often say, and this is somewhat uh, argumentative point to make, but I often say. There's a very good reason why it's called bovine tuberculosis and not servine tuberculosis. I remember saying that on the HCAF, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
And when we add to that the fact between the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer is often just a single strand barbed wire, you can see what the potential for confusion is. But uh, without being facetious about it, that's not my intention. At the end of the day, a better uh, partnership is required between the recreational hunter uh, and the landowner. And uh, let's not forget the role of Quidsha in all of this. You know, they own well over a million acres of the island of Ireland. Um, they have a core responsibility, uh, and they exercise that responsibility by allowing recreational hunters in. Um, the trouble with recreational hunters probably lies in that very term, recreational hunter. Uh, for a lot of recreational hunters, the objective isn't a somewhat esoteric topic of deer management. It's more like you know a day out shooting and a, a trophy for the wall at the end of the day. Um, and uh, that is to ignore the importance of managing uh, the hind population, the doe population, because unless you're managing and controlling the female population, you're at nothing. You know, you're at nothing. It, it, that 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 is the the essence of, of efficient uh, management. And we won't get bogged down into theories about uh, population pyramids of the Hoffman period or anything like that. Over selective, you know. But the fact is you have to construct a population according to age as well as to gender uh, and to make sure that there is a sustainable population that is sustainable in terms of, number one, uh, the available uh, availability of food and shelter for the deer, and secondly, the impact uh, on the farming community, which I'm, I hope I'm at pains not to understate or to underestimate. There is a balance to be achieved there at the moment, there is a serious imbalance, according to all sources, a serious imbalance. Uh, but that can only be dealt with and overcome by a better type of partnership between all the interested parties, including the farming community. Uh, and, and, and it does require a, a higher level of, uh, if not a training, but certainly a competence and understanding and practice on the part of the licensed deer hunter. Uh, that he, 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 he or she recognizes that they are a, a very important part of the equation um, uh, uh, because, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a military force almost of over 6,000 uh, armed and licensed uh, persons there, you know, that's almost a standing army. It shouldn't be necessary to talk about contract culling, you know, if the recreational hunter were doing all that is required of him. Uh, all this is up for discussion at the moment, and I've no doubt that there'll be a lot of discussion about it in, in, in the coming weeks and months as the uh, deer management strategy unfolds. If you could have your way, in air quotes, Liam, what changes would, let, would you like to see to the deer management in Ireland? Uh, because there were talks about ex ex expanding uh, shooting season, about changing the dates where where you could uh, hunt hinds and, and stuff like that. How would you, what would be your recommendation? Well, I, I, I tend to be quite conservative um, when I look at seasons and so forth uh, because of my involvement goes back, you know, almost to the time of the development of the Wildlife Act in 1976. It was in that very year that I, I first, well, indeed in 74, that I first got interested in wild deer um, 
as an extension of my ordinary shooting activities. Uh, and I was involved then with people like Liam McGarry, whom I'm pleased to say is still very much uh, uh, on the active front. Um, but, you know, protection was very hard won for wild deer in 1976. Prior to 1976, uh, they had no protection whatsoever, you know, other than through the Larceny Act of all things. Um, so, it, it, you know, to, 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 to get that type of uh, protection at a time when uh, there was no question of a, 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 an overabundance of wild deer, quite the reverse. Uh, but then equally, there wasn't an overabundance of lysotopic hunters either. So um, I, I'm, I'm cautious, and, I, and there have been different experiments over the years with uh, lengthening and shortening the seasons, and there have been, I mean, originally, uh, when I say originally, up, up to uh, 2020, I think it was, um, the, the hunting season for stags ran to the 28th of February. So effectively, it was a 12-month hunting season. Now, that was shortened in order to focus attention on the need to shoot hinds. Uh, and that has worked to a degree, but not, not to a complete uh, success at all. Um, there is an issue there with extending the shooting season for, um, well, for either gender. You see, extending the shooting season uh, for stags does nothing except make people feel good when they shoot shot more stags. It does little or nothing to control the numbers of deer that might be on the same patch of ground a year later. You know, um, all it takes is one hyper or super active stag to take up the slack where any stag that may be culled, uh, and, and because of the emphasis on trophies, it could be that you get a lesser animal uh, taking over uh, with the remaining hinds. Now, the other issue about shooting hinds is that uh, assuming that the hind is covered during the October rut of the September October rut, she is going to be pregnant on the first of November, and she's going to be no more or no less pregnant than she will be on the first of March. But there is unfortunately a uh, an understandable and and possibly natural uh, reluctance on the part of the recreational hunter to shoot females which are at an advanced stage of pregnancy, and that. That applies certainly in the month of, of February. Um, uh, just last week, uh, there was some controversy uh, over uh, females shot under a section 42 and five or six unborn fetuses being left as part of the grolic at the scene of that cull, uh, which was a, an otherwise, and indeed, uh, in spite of that, a perfectly legal and valid cull. But that aside, it does sort of uh, exemplify the reluctance on the part of hunters uh, to shoot females at an advanced stage. And indeed, there's a, there's a school of thought that says there should be no Section 42s for female deer, um, certainly from April through to what? I don't know, probably August. Um, uh, well, they're either carrying an unborn calf or they have a calf that's far too young to fend for itself uh, if, the, if the female is shot in the month uh, of, of June or July. So uh, there, these are complex issues, and there's no easy solution to them. And for these reasons, I approach uh, seasons to uh, changes to the season with some caution. Um, 
you know, it's like moving the, the deck chairs in some, in some respects. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get safely to shore, you know, once the, once the ship is uh, founded on the rocks. In this case, the rocks of incompetent or non-existent uh, sustainable management over a period of years rather than as a knee-jerk reaction to an immediate problem, you know? Just to just to finish off that that uh, um, section of our of our conversation, you mentioned a few times that the focus of uh, recreational hunters is on on trophy on the wall. Is that the case? Is it not the focus more on the meat for the freezer? I always like to think about the you know that the this is the motivating factor. What what's your? But obviously you have like a wider view of the yeah, situation. Yeah, you, you're you're right. I mean, it's not purely the trophy on the wall. Obviously, uh, you know, meat for the freezer is a is a perfectly acceptable byproduct of hunting. That's really, after all, the rationale uh, for shooting game of any kind. Um, that you're 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 harvesting a surplus uh, for human uh, need, and that is to fill the freezer. Uh, venison is, of course, not just nutritious and tasty. Uh, it, it's also uh, uh, hormone-free, uh, no additives. It's really a beautiful meat. Um, so certainly that, that is uh, a, 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 a credible and, and valid reason for hunting. The same applies to pheasant shooting and so on. But um, the other dimension of that is the commercial poacher, you know, uh, the, you know, who, who might come under the general heading of recreational hunter, uh, he might not. But certainly, uh, his motivation is commercial uh, rather than to do with deer management or the concerns or interests of the landowning community. Uh, that what he's trying to do is uh, put not just put meat on the table, but put 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 euros in the in the bank. Um, uh, for example. Uh, the, the last available cull figure uh, for the country was the previous season, 55,000 deer, you know. Now, from my long experience, I know that when it comes to uh, balancing culls with active hunters, the old 80-20 rule appears to kick in with, with 20% of the hunters will account for 80% of the harvest. Uh, when you allow for those figures, you realize that the ordinary recreational hunter is not just shooting single figures, but very low single figures, maybe two to three deer a year. Uh, whereas the commercial shooter uh, is shooting 40, 50, 60, 70 deer a year. And I, I know of cases, and they're properly recorded, and they're perfectly legal, uh, where the licensed hunter is, is shooting upwards of two to 300 uh, deer a year. Uh, because that's they're there to be shot, and he's shooting them. I would be concerned, of course, about the practice of night shooting, um, whether it's by uh, licensed hunters or, uh, shall we say, uh, more opportunistic shooters. The issue I have with night shooting, um, uh, and that includes uh, the use of lamps and uh, thermal in imagery, it is very simple that it's non-selective. Uh, you know, by the time most shoot hunters shooting at night with a lamp will be shooting uh, at the eyes of the deer um, and effectively taking a headshot uh, and the potential for cruel damage rather than a clean kill uh, is measurable. Um, and, and secondly, from a different point of view altogether, <laughs> I think that 
every shot taken at night is a potential um, uh, offence under firearms legislation uh, coming under the heading of reckless discharge of a firearm for the simple reason that it's almost impossible to determine whether or not there is an adequate backstop for the for the rifle shot. Yeah. You know, so these are factors that must be contained. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. Uh, but I've seen too many deer with their lower jaws shot off or badly shot somewhere else in the body and left to die a slow and lingering death. And I've heard too many reports uh, of, of, of damage to property uh, because of reckless shooting uh, to take anything for granted. Yeah, I heard, I heard those as well. I heard those as well. There's no doubt it's, it's, this is uh, going on. Um, final question on this subject, uh, Liam. Where we are with uh, deer census in Ireland, I think this is like a personal bugbear of mine that we don't have like a reliable census of deer. We don't really know how many deer we have in Ireland. Is that still the case? Were there any movement in that regard? Well, of course, th th there is a, a serious attempt underwritten to the tune of a quarter of a million euros by the government uh, with the development of the Smart Deer Project uh, out of University College Dublin, which is laudable in principle. How practical it is at the end of the day remains to be seen. It's an information resource uh, insofar as uh, information has been pooled from every possible source, um, both experienced and inexperienced, uh, to arrive at a, um, a, a snapshot uh, which purports to show the density and spread of deer across the country. Um, what, it, what the results of the Smart Deer Project have done is confirm uh, what I said at the beginning of this interview, that there's no doubt whatsoever that deer have expanded exponentially over the last 20 years for the reasons that I think we've identified. Um, that doesn't solve the problem of what to do. Um, and, you know, what it does is adds another red dot to the map of Ireland as to, yes, there were deer seen here, that they were not seen in that location 20 years ago. Um, you know, uh, and, and I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a source of information um, will be taken into consideration. Um, you know, I'm I, I, uh, not so sure how practical it is. Um, you see, all deer managers are a bit like politics. There's an old slogan that all politics is local. Well, all deer management is local as well, you know. Uh, hopefully it comes together at the end of the day to form a national picture and a national standard of performance uh, in terms of sustainable management. But uh, to suddenly impose a blanket policy that says this shall be the policy for managing wild deer, well, by definition, it has to be so broad as to be capable of interpretation in half a dozen different ways. At the end of the day, the very end of the day, it boils down to the individual with the rifle who knows what he's doing or she's doing and is able to do it. Um, and that requires the cooperation of the landowner. And I include Quilche uh, as landowners for the obvious reason. The difference is that um, uh, the recreation hunter who's on a license or lease with Quilche is paying uh, disproportionately. Um, and that can sway his approach to management of deer on that forest block. Um, I, I'm proud to say that I've had um, um, a license on the same block of forestry for now entering year 36 
Um, and we don't have a problem with deer in that particular block of forestry, um, uh, except where we benefit from an influx of deer from surrounding areas where uh, deer management is not as actively pursued as it is uh, on, on the block of 2,000 acres in question. Um, but it isn't, unfortunately, open to everybody to, to enjoy that benefit because the, the, the practice at the moment is for uh, licenses to be offered on an open bid, an open tender basis on five-year licenses. Um, and uh, that means sometimes that the deepest pockets win out over and above uh, the, the, the local very, very committed hunter who is perhaps in a better position to implement sustainable management and knows what he's doing. I'm not saying that the man with deep pockets doesn't know what he's doing. He possibly does. Um, but he's had a, an advantage in, in terms of uh, the local bid system. Now, to what extent uh, that situation is going to uh, change with the advent of uh, the HAMS uh, program, the hunting area management system that was implemented for the first time last season by Quilcher, um, after a couple of false starts. Um, uh, and certainly from Quilcher's point of view, it has taken some of the pain out of administering uh, the licensing system. Um, to what extent uh, it's going to contribute to better management remains to be seen, but we'll give it a fair try. Um, HAMS, as you know, requires um, reserving uh, hunting 48 hours in advance. Well, that was always the case anyway, but it also requires the, the uh, hunter to check in and to check out uh, and to report what he or she has shot and even seen uh, on, on, the, uh, on, on the forest on the day in question. So hopefully, if if accurate harvests are recorded, uh, a, a picture will build up, and not more accurate picture than hitherto. And I say more accurate picture for the simple reason that I think we have to have some degree of skepticism about that figure of 55,000 deer that I mentioned earlier on. In my experience, um, uh, people who shoot too many seldom admit to shooting too many, and people who don't shoot enough seldom admit to not shooting it. Uh, <laughs> you know? So um, I think people will, uh, as I say, say they shot more deer than they actually did, or maybe even if they say they shot one or two, because they don't want to lose their, their license from Quilcher or be seen as being inactive or unsuccessful. Equally, the man who shoots 100 deer uh, is possibly not going to say that uh, openly and publicly, even on a, in a, 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 a disclosure to the NPWS with his license renewal. So again, maybe, maybe the under-declarations balance with the over-declarations, I don't know. But I think we're entitled to a little touch, a little modicum of skepticism on, on the returns. A little touch of skepticism is always a good idea always a good in idea. life. Liam, uh, let's switch gear now and let's talk about Firearms Expert Committee. And uh, so what is going on there? Uh, I guess every firearm owner, when the government does something uh, with the firearm legislations, everybody goes like, oh my God, what are they going to do now? 
and uh, people who who aware of uh, how Irish government uh, um, not implemented but interpreted the EU recent EU regulation. Uh, you know the the famous locked receptacle that nobody seemed to be know what, this, what that means. So. What is going on with uh, Firearms Expert Committee? What is the role of, or maybe what is the Firearms Users Representative Group and how that situation look like? First of all, in the interest of full disclosure, let me say that I and 33 others um, all sought a position on that FEC when it was announced by Minister James Brown uh, in, in uh, June of last year. Um, and I, I suppose I might be accused of sour grapes when I go on to say uh, that I was a bit disappointed in the eventual um, uh, structure of that five-person expert committee, uh, which is comprised of two ordinary members, um, one uh, independent chair, one person from the Garda Shikona, and one person from the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I, it, it fell well short um, of a, a consultation uh, with with stakeholders. Um, that's not to say that the two ordinary members and indeed the other three persons on the committee uh, wouldn't have perfectly valid opinions, but that's all they would be, opinions. Um, and I think that what, what, where the committee fell short and where the minister continues to fall short in terms of implementation of any adequate or full or proper review of legislation is an utterly failing to consult with the body, the serious body of uh, firearms users in this country, which are well north of 100,000 individuals. So what happened uh, with the establishment of the committee was that, um, uh, as I think I mentioned briefly earlier on, um, a, a few of the interested stakeholder groups, rather than individuals, no, not individuals, groups that had a, 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 a dog in the fight, so to speak, you know, um, uh, got together and decided that we would try to identify, first of all, um, how we felt about the FEC um, and about the direction that the FEC was taking or appeared to be taking. Because it became evident uh, very early on uh, with the publication of the different meetings of the FEC uh, that it was very much under the direction of the guard, the Shikona. Um, perfectly understandable. What police force in the world wouldn't love to see uh, a reduction uh, in the number of firearms uh, that are available uh, uh, amongst the civilian population? Um, uh, but that doesn't make it laudable. It doesn't make it acceptable that the views of over 100,000 people that, who are in control of almost a quarter of a million individual firearms um, should be ignored. Uh, uh, but that continues to be the way. However, going back to the uh, actual uh, workings of the committee, as I say, it did become evident that they were perhaps going beyond their terms of reference. Uh, the terms of reference uh, which were spelt out uh, in the initial um, uh, documentation uh, attaching to the FEC were to consider um, the types of firearms uh, that might be or should be available to the ordinary licensed person here in Ireland. Secondly, the use and purpose 
uh, for which those uh, firearms might be used. That began then to sort of develop into a wider brief, according to the minutes uh, that be, were, were posted on the ministers on the government uh, website. On sorry, the website of the Department of Justice. And I think nine sets of minutes were published over the lifetime of the committee. Um, and it did become obvious to us that there were areas of emerging concern. Uh, for example, to take one one simple thing, uh, the the committee did spend some time considering a conditional uh, aspect to firearm certificates, which might limit uh, the location on which any given firearm might be used. Now, there is in the original Principal Act of 1925 a facility uh, whereby if an individual was taking one firearm from one superintendent's district to another, then both superintendents ought to be advised. That, to my knowledge, uh, uh, having held firearms for close on 60 years, well, certainly 55 years now, uh, has never been implemented and never followed through, totally because it's totally impractical. And the same would apply that if I got a, a, a for example, a, fire, a firearm certificate for a 12-bore shotgun for purposes of game shooting, that could mean uh, that I could use it only on the land on which I uh, got my original permission. And secondly, that I might only use it for game shooting and not for vermin control. Uh, the same might apply to a, a, a rifle for which I got for purposes of uh, vermin control, be it a, a 2-2 Hornet or a 2-2-3 or whatever uh, for fox control or even a 22-250 for fox control as opposed to deer hunting. Then it might only be used for that purpose. Um, now, I won't go into the issue of uh, the adequacy of a 22-250 for deer shooting. But if, for example, I had a 243 or a 270 or a 308 for purposes of deer hunting, could I use it for anything else? And could I use it anywhere other than the land on which um, I, I, I cited my permission for the purposes of getting that firearm certificate and getting that deer hunting license? So these were warning signs, and they're still there. They're still evident because as the, um, the uh, reports, uh, the two-part report, of the FEC was published, which was done on the 31st of March of this year at very short notice, um, uh, in, in the sense that we had up to that date been pushing the minister for a report. And I think he possibly saw the publication of the, of the reports uh, as a reason for not meeting with us, uh, he, because I had previously said he would await the publication of the reports. Now he's talking about having an online survey to consider the reports before meeting with us. But that's another bone of contention. But once you go through the 84 pages of the two-part report, you can see disturbing and worrying signs where it's entirely possible that the original remit of the uh, FEC has been expanded um, in, in the same unhealthy way that deer populations have, expand, have expanded to take in a range of topics and a range of options that were perhaps not originally contemplated and certainly would have a significant impact on the ordinary firearms user. Okay, um, Now, I, I, there are aspects of the, the uh, report which were capable of anticipation, such as uh, the ban on semi-automatic rifles that was flagged as long ago as 2015. 
Um, but there is, as you probably are aware, a, a, a bill going through the House of the Eruptus at the moment, uh, the Criminal Justice Miscellaneous Provisions Bill of 2022, as it's now uh, described. It was originally a 2015 bill. It's taken uh, almost eight years to work its way through. Of course, it's not, it's not all to do with firearms. It deals with multiple aspects of criminal justice. But that contains a, a provision there which uh, impacts on the uh, use of the semi-automatic rifle. Now, let me say right away, um, I, it's no secret that I see absolutely no place for a semi-automatic rifle in deer management or deer control. Um, but I do see uh, a, a legitimate use for it uh, with a different uh, group of individuals who are interested in that type of uh, target shooting. Not necessarily competitive target shooting, but just target shooting. That's perfectly valid. And there is a, a type of grandfather clause there, uh, which will be as um, impactful as the 2009 provisions affecting short firearms, insofar as the universe of users of the semi-automatic uh, rifle will be curtailed. Um, I, I, how that is intended to work is that um, any firearm, any certificates issued for semi-automatic rifles after September 2015 will be revoked once that bill becomes an act and is passed into law. Uh, the numbers are not significant. Sorry, they're significant so far as the users are concerned. They're not significant in the context of, you know, uh, 220,000 individual firearms. They're a tiny, almost immeasurable percentage. Nonetheless, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that their rights and entitlements shouldn't be recognized. It means effectively that only those firearms uh, of that category which were licensed before September 2015 will be capable of being renewed going forward further until either the users die off or dispose of the firearms in question. So that is significant, uh, you know, and... and uh, if it can happen with uh, one category of firearm, uh, and indeed the second category of firearm for which this um, uh, difficult legal procedure has been adopted, the same did apply with, with uh, categories of short firearms, uh, other than the short, the finite list that's contained in the Guard the Commissioner's Guidelines of 2018 for effectively for competitive target shooting with the 2-2 uh, pistol or, or handgun so it could just as easily apply to any other form of firearm so for that reason uh, alone um, FERG has tried to draw up a list of firearms uh, for which the, the uh, there should be no question but that there's a legitimate need and, and need to have continued to be licensed and that ranges from the 0.17 uh, right up to um, the uh, even the 338 it's certainly beyond the 308 uh, uh, for arguments to have them as uh, non-restricted firearms and to have a greater understanding on the part of issuing authorities as to what constitutes a restricted and a non-restricted firearm so um, part and parcel of that uh, concern by the way has to do and it's a very very important part is with the um, different interpretations that are placed on firearms legislation by different issuing authorities, by which I mean, frankly, 
the different opinions held by different superintendents of the Garda Shikona across the country, you know. Uh, and there are widely and widely differing interpretations being followed. Like uh, moderators is a is a part is a is a, a good example is our moderators, where it was like openly, uh, you know, like oh you live there you're not gonna get permit for the moderator because superintendent don't like them. You're absolutely right, Tommy. Um, uh, you know the, the the definition of restricted firearm, for example, takes in uh, certain uh, a a a uh, telescopic uh, instruments light imagery and so forth, uh, it, it, it appears to be biased uh, very much in favor of um, why a sound moderator should be considered a restricted firearm or even a firearm is beyond me. Uh, to me, the arguments in favor of a sound moderator are clear cut and in favor of the general public as much as in favor of the, of the user. You know, there are times uh, when uh, disturbance uh, to livestock, to bloodstock, and to humans uh, should be kept to an absolute minimum. Uh, the, the, the culling, the regular culling of deer in the Phoenix Park is a perfect example where um, the, the, uh, if sound moderators were not used uh, for the annual cull of deer in the Phoenix Park, which is undertaken by experts in that, in that field, would not be possible uh, without the use of sound moderators. Uh, and the same would apply, for example, if I'm controlling deer uh, adjacent to to um, a, 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 a stud farm, for example, where disturbance to, to pregnant uh, bloodstock would be significant. Uh, never mind the issue of protection of my hearing. You might say that's a risk I take onto myself when I use a firearm, but nonetheless, it doesn't mean I'm not entitled to protect my hearing and the hearing of anybody with me. Exactly. Well, uh, I think the argument in favor of a sound moderator should not be um, left open to differing uh, opinion on the part of an issuing authority. I agree. Um, Liam, tell us, what is the uh, situation with the scopes, with the, with the optics on the rifle? Because there was another area where there were some questions or misunderstanding. I, I, I did an item on the... Uh, blog of the Deer Alliance website, which is very comprehensive, I think, and I updated that a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't have that particular documentation in front of me right now, but basically um, uh, it, 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 it does require a special license, okay? Uh, it is a restricted firearm within the meaning of the legislation, uh, and it does require authority of an issuing officer. Um, uh, and there is a compounding uh, factor here is that uh, because of its categorization, um, the, the, uh, there's a question at the moment on whether or not they have been validly authorized at all um, because they may not have been imported to this country in line with the necessary importation regulations. Um, uh, and, and effectively, the, the uh, Garda Chicon have come up with an Irish solution to an Irish problem, uh, which is to say that those people who have got them already, uh, let them have, leave them alone, uh, whereas people who are looking for them for the future will face obstacles. Uh, so that is an unresolved piece of territory, uh, which I think uh, would be part and parcel uh, of, of the discussions 
emanating from the FEC, and indeed that we'll be happy to debate with the minister in, in the fullness of time. That is that is interesting. So what you're saying that the people who are applying for deer hunting rifle, they need to also apply for the for the scope? It, no, you're talking now about a what I call uh, um, image intensifying, uh, tele, you know, a night imaging. Is that what I'm talking okay. about here? Uh, no, uh, the scope uh, is... You see, the thing about the, the uh, legislation is that it's deemed that if the uh, night imaging uh, equipment is designed to be part and parcel of a firearm, then it is deemed to be a firearm per se, okay? Whereas a handheld uh, image intensifier, which is not designed to be fitted and become part of a firearm, is not. And therefore, you can have one of those without any authority whatsoever. Uh, and there are many thousands of them, I'm sure. I, I certainly have had one uh, for fox shooting purposes long before I thought about using uh, thermal imagery for fox control. Never mind deer management or deer control. And I've already stated my personal position on the use of this equipment um, as, as a potentially, you know, instrument for abuse. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that. So are we basically waiting now and see what's going to happen next? Or is it anything that um, recreational hunters who are worried uh, to get even more obstacles now? Because the iron is already country with one of the most, if not the most, restrict, restrictive law when it comes to firearm ownership. Um, so what what can be done? Like, is, is, is there anything that can be done or is it just basically wait and see? You can wait and see, but also gird your loins at the same time, you know? Uh, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Uh, the implications of the FEC, if, if all the... Um, unformed and half-formed and ill-formed recommendations were carried through, it would be a disaster for the ordinary firearms user uh, uh, as well as for the niche users. Remember as well, there's lots of other people that are affected by any legislation, the reloaders, uh, the reenactors, all that sort of thing. Uh, they all, uh, there's the potential for, for um, uh, interference there. Uh, Let's go back a little bit and say that originally when Minister of State James Brown announced this thing, one of the throwaway phrases he used, as I recall, and I'm open to correction on this, was to bring Ireland more into line with our European partners, which suggests to me that perhaps he wasn't up to date with what was happening in the other 26 uh, member states of the Union. Um, you know, th there is a core difference uh, between the Irish licensing system and other uh, member states' systems. And I'll use Germany as, as the one with which I'm personally more, more familiar. Uh, in, in Germany, uh, well, there are different types of firearms. You get hunting and non-hunting and so on. Nonetheless, once I've got my, um, uh, done my training and my, got my, my DJV, so-called, uh, I, I can have up to nine firearms on my firearm certificate. In other words, I am the, 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 the person who is certified as being entitled to have up to nine firearms, up to two of which can be short firearms, by the way. Um, now, that's quite different from the Irish licensing system where every individual firearm is the subject 
of what started off as a customs duty. Uh, and you have to go back into Irish and clouded Irish history to, to explore this. Uh, in 1847, as you know, um, uh, we had the Great Irish Famine. And we had more firearms imported in this country uh, in that one year than we had in the previous 10 years. Uh, because you had the landowning uh, uh, element uh, anxious to protect their crops of wheat and grain and so forth. And the, the volume of firearms imported, in particular from Birmingham, were, were actually staggering absolutely staggering. Um, uh, you're, you're talking tens of thousands uh, of firearms where only some hundreds have been brought in before. So a customs duty was applied in order to get some control over the number and, and, and availability of, of uh, firearms. That over a period of time and the evolution of the state, the establishment of the Irish Free State, uh, as it was then called, uh, the enactment of the Principal Act of 1925 uh, eventually became a, a firearm certificate, a fee, and that is what it is today. But even that has changed in recent years from being, as I recall, 25 old pounds per year to 80 euros per three years. Um, but it still has its origins in uh, the in in the uh, application of a uh, customs duty uh, rather than a license fee, so um, you know why would the state forfeit two hundred and twenty thousand times eighty every three years, whereas in fact what they should be doing is licensing one hundred thousand individuals and forfeiting the difference, uh, if indeed there is a difference. But the point is that um, perhaps it is the case that the issue of a firearm certificate um, has been lax in the past. Uh, you know, perhaps it has been. I can't say that categorically. The nine-page firearm certificate application form that is currently in place seems to me to be quite um, uh, exhaustive and quite sufficient uh, to determine whether or not a person is a fit person to have a firearm certificate in the first place. After all, they have to produce, um, they make a declaration in relation to their criminal past if they have one. They've got to obtain referees. They've got to give permission to give um, access to the medical records. They've got to demonstrate they've got land suitable over which to shoot and so on. It seems to me to be um, quite um, exhaustive and, and acceptable. If it is acceptable, uh, to demonstrate my acceptability as an individual, why would I need multiple firearm certificates for multiple firearms? I'm no more or less dangerous with one firearm than I am with three, four, five, or so on. Now, I qualify that by saying that I, for one, um, recognize the sheer good sense of the commissioner's guidelines in relation to home security. I see nothing wrong with that. You know, I think they are the minimum that one should have. Um, I, 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 I think that the idea of resistance to a simple gun safe, even from the point of view of, never mind, opportunistic burglars, but also, you know, one's children, or in my case, grandchildren in, in the house, uh, would suggest that I need to have the very minimum security. And that should rightfully increase as I go up the scale in terms of the numbers and type uh, firearm, be it shotguns or, or rifles or short firearms, 
or be it uh, restricted or non-restricted firearms. I think there's a very strong case, which the commissioner makes in, in his guidelines for, for adequacy of security in, in the whole. Um, and uh, that's to be lauded. Now, let's, before we get carried away, there is a suggestion, it seems to me, in the Firearms uh, Expert Committee reports that the domestic requirements should be the same as for firearms dealers once you go up as to beyond a certain scale of numbers and types of firearms. Now, I think you, people need to consider that very, very carefully because clearly the requirements for a full firearms dealer's uh, license are you know, deep and profound and wide and expensive and almost impossible for the ordinary domestic user to have. But there is a suggestion that as you go up the scale uh, of ownership, that uh, the requirements for security would also go up the scale. Now, that's something that, that needs to be thought about very carefully as a practical measure, just as the question of, of policing uh, a use and location of a firearm and, 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 and the possibility of policing it adequately um, needs to be thought about very carefully by both parties to the equation. Absolutely, absolutely. And folks, we're going to put a link uh, to the uh, the Reliance blog in the show notes, uh, so you can go into the description of the show, uh, clicking there and uh, read uh, through the blogs, uh, Liam, that you put out in there. Um, they are indeed very comprehensive, and they're covering most of the topics that we talked about and more. Is there anything else that you feel like you would like to share with us and with the hunting community that I didn't ask you about. Well, it's, we've been talking for an hour now, and I would have hoped we've covered everything, but I'm not sure we have. But I think we've covered enough for a first podcast, Tommy. That is absolutely fantastic, and uh, I, I I understand that you are uh, up for uh, recording another one in uh, in uh, in some future, which is something I may take you up on. If I could interrupt you, Tommy, I, I think it would be appropriate to bring an update, uh, both on firearms legislation and on deer management and deer control once we've got over um, the, 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 these these uh, uh, hiccups that we have at the moment, a hiccup certainly in the part of the firearms legislation and the developing approach uh, to deer management uh, as represented by the Deer Management Strategy Group. We're recording this uh, in the middle of April. By the end of April, uh, certainly that, that there should be significant updates under both headings. Now, you asked me earlier on what, what might be done. Um, I, I think, you know, um, with FERG, if I can call it that, um, there, there, there's a need for every firearms user to get behind their representative organization and make sure that the voice is heard and that the work of FERG continues, which I'm, I very much hope it will. Uh, I, I have found that, that working with the bodies such as the NAOGC uh, and the different deer organizations uh, right, and, and to include, for example, the, the commercial interests, the tourist interests, uh, has proven very, very productive and, and very strengthening across the board. And that must be continued, I hope, or will be continued, I hope. Uh, and the same applies on the deer management side. Uh, it, it, these things can never be left to somebody else to do, you know. It's all very well saying, well, sure, look, let's wait and see, you know. That's fine so far as it goes, but you must have a plan B. You must know uh, what the likely consequences of change will be. Change isn't necessarily bad. 
change can be good, but you have to recognize what the consequences, and in particular, the unintended or unforeseen consequences might be of change, and to uh, prepare for that, uh, and to, to build on it uh, as necessary or appropriate. So, Tommy, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for giving me this platform. I hope I haven't abused it. Uh, let me hasten to say that the views expressed here are entirely my own. Okay, so thank you very much. Of course, Liam, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 